Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Michael Sabraco, and this is my wife Susan. Our two boys are somewhere where I do not know, uh, but I believe it's in the Sunday school class. Um, but we, uh, this is our second time at Grace Presbyterian. Uh, we came out uh, to Grace soon after we moved to New York, uh, which was about five months ago. And since then, we've been living in Brooklyn. Uh, we are starting a church there. And it is a joy to, again, be here with you this morning. Um, and I, by the way, I do know Mark. I remember Mark from our covenant days. We went to graduate school together and so uh, know him and his wife, Leslie. And so it's great to see uh, the work they are doing out here and to worship with you. So this morning, uh, we are going to look at this text here. Uh, It's uh, page 31 in your Bibles, uh, Pew Bibles, if you have that, or you can look in the order of worship, the bulletin. Uh, If you are unfamiliar with the life of Joseph, this is a pivotal moment in his life. Uh, In fact, this reorders his course, and therefore the course of God's people, Uh, It's one of those moments that he would look back upon and say, it was then that I thought I was going this direction, but I ended up going another. Uh, And so we consider this text, uh, and we will see that what we see through it is that the God of the Bible, the God of all grace, is indeed a God of mercy and grace. So let me read this text. Uh, It's from Genesis 37, verses 12 through 28. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. The brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, 
And they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Would you take a moment to pray with me? Father, we come to this text, this story that happened in space and time. And we ask that you would open our eyes to it, that we would see ourselves, but not only ourselves, but you. And Father, that you would encourage us, that you would direct us, and that you would enable us to love you and to love others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to begin by telling you two stories from my childhood. Uh, the first one is, uh, is about growing up in my neighborhood. My neighborhood consisted of mostly boys. And I was the youngest by about two years. And I remember wanting to be liked and accepted, but I didn't necessarily possess the qualities that would enable me to be liked or accepted. But whenever I tasted it, I really wanted it. I remember this one day I was at home by myself and some boys came by and said, hey, would you like to play a game with me? And being seven years old, I was excited and still had to ask permission. So I went inside and asked my mom if I could go play a game. Came outside and nobody was there. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to jump on my bike and go find them. And then I got on my bike and started riding through the neighborhood, and surely I saw up in the distance some kids sitting on a porch. And as I approached, they were laughing and taunting. And soon I realized they had played a trick on me. They never intended to play a game with me. They just wanted to see me eagerly find them. And as I approached again, I heard their words and their insults, and I turned around and went home. I want to tell you another story. This happened about three years later. This was at school, and at school I had three close friends. There were four of us. And every day we would have recess and we would do the same exact thing. We would play basketball. And we got to know each other quite well, but one day I decided that I would talk to two of my friends and turn them against the fourth. And that's what I did. I laid out a plan and I sort of said, hey, this is what we should do. We should take things from his desk and when he walks by, we should kick him in the shins. And being a, I suppose, a compelling plan to these 10-year-olds, they indulged me, and that's what we did for weeks. We systematically took things out of his desk, and we would kick his shins. Now, why do I tell you these two stories? Well, they are one of dozens of stories that illustrate the complexity of my human heart. And you have your own. Stories where you are truly a victim and stories where you offend. And that's what it means to be human. If you look at the Bible and you ask the question, who are humans? Well, one answer that comes to the surface is that we are victims. We have been victimized by people we trust, people we don't know at times. But not only are we victims, we are offenders. And this is what we see in this text. I think what we see is the complexity of the human heart. And we see it through the characters. We see it through Joseph. We see it through his brothers. And again, we answer the question, who are we? Well, we are victims and we are offenders. And the second thing we're going to consider is, who is God in this? Because he knows this about us. And how does he respond? And so let's consider these questions. Who are we through this story? And who is God? So who are we? Well, first, we are victims. And we see this through the life of Joseph. And he is embodying 
vulnerability from the very get-go through uh, verses 12 through 15. He's sent by his father to go find his brothers who are pasturing the flock. And it's interesting, it's almost intentional that we're given this detail that Joseph encounters this stranger. And this stranger asks, what are you looking for? And I think there are two ways we can understand this question. First, literally, what are you looking for, Joseph? Why are you here? Well, I'm looking for my brothers. But I think there is a double meaning here. What are you really looking for? And what he was looking for was relationship with his brothers. He desires relationship. And that desire for relationship leads us sometimes to vulnerability, but it does indeed provide an opportunity for Joseph to be vulnerable. He leaves the safety of his father's house. Remember, he's the beloved father, son of his father Isaac. He's cared for and delighted in. And he leaves the safety of his father's house and goes and entrusts himself in the lives of his brother. No hesitation, fully trusting, open to relationship. And it's interesting, he was not taught this desire. It's instinct, and this is true for us. To be human means that we desire relationship, particularly with those whom we are family with or even close with, our neighbors. We desire relationship, and sometimes that leads us to be open and vulnerable with others. Well, what happens here is we see Joseph doing this, offering his life in a vulnerable position, and we can say to ourselves, this is exactly what he ought to be doing. For these are his brothers. He should be able to trust his life into their hands. He should be able to believe that they're not going to harm him. But in another way, he's doing something he ought not to be doing. And again, I, if you remember, he was the f- favorite son. And because of that, his brothers had all sort of con- contempt for him. They realized Isaac, their father, was not, uh, did not hide the fact that he loved Joseph more. Gave him a coat, a great gift. And his brothers, throughout the story, you see this contempt that they have for their younger brother. And so we look at that and we're like, why are you doing that? Why are you modeling vulnerability when you're going to get yourself hurt? <coughs> well, what we see is this vulnerability leads to betrayal, and I'm not going to read the text, but if you see in verses 18 and following, his brothers see him coming from a distance. And they, it says here that they plan to murder him. And Reuben, being both courageous and cowardly, comes up with an alternate plan. He's like, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into a pit. And his plan was to eventually draw him out and to return him to his father. But this is what happens. This Joseph who's vulnerable, goes to his brothers, puts his life into their hands, and is open to relationship. They turn that against him, and they betray him. They throw him into a pit. And the author here says that the pit was without water. And I think it's an interesting detail. But this is what betrayal is, isn't it? It feels like you are literally being thrown into a pit, cut off from relationship. You don't have light That thing that brought you joy suddenly turns into shame. And this is something that we have all experienced from one degree or another. Our vulnerability has led to, uh, to a betrayal. And maybe it's a parent or a sibling who has abandoned us or abused us. Maybe it's a co-worker who's turned against us. 
To be human means to look in the mirror and to be honest with the fact that at some point in our life, we have been victimized. We have been thrown into the pit, cut off from relationship, alone. And it is those experiences that define our lives. It is in those experiences that we look back to and realize that is a moment that my course was reordered. But this is what it means to be human. This is something that we cannot hide from. We are victims. But we're not only victims, we are also offenders. And we see this through uh, Joseph's brothers. As I said, they have complete contempt for their brother. And in verse 19, as Joseph approaches, they say something that is uh, interesting. Again, he say, they say, here comes this dreamer. Now, they're referring to these dreams that Joseph had some months or years before where he dreamt that, uh, that, that his brothers bowed down to him, that he had some sort of power over them. And that just made them very upset because, again, he was sort of relishing in the fact that he was the favored one. And so as he approaches, they say, here comes this dreamer. They completely label him. They completely label him. They remove his name and replace it with a label. And that labeling is born out of contempt. It is basically reducing something, someone to their, uh, to that, to their sin or to something that annoys you. And once you label someone, once you give them that name, they become less than human. You remove their dignity. They no longer have hopes and dreams and a story. They are just something, a dreamer or whatever. And this is something we all do. Here, you know, here comes that annoying person. Here comes that needy person. Here comes that useful person. It is simply, uh, more simple, excuse me, to look at somebody that we are in relationship with and not treat them in all the complexity of who they are, but rather reduce them to their sin or to something that annoys you about them. But once we do that, we remove their name, we replace it with a label, And that is a step towards violence. That is a step towards violence. And that is what happens here in the story. Once they label him as a dreamer, it doesn't matter what they do to him. It doesn't matter how they treat him. It doesn't matter what they say to him because he's no longer a brother, a loved one. He's this thing. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, once you label me, you negate me. That is true, isn't it? Maybe you have experienced being labeled. And in such situations, you're like, okay, I I feel misunderstood. I feel like I'm not really uh, being honored here. But the same is true when we do that to others. And we do this all the time. We do it instinctively. We do it um, sometimes not on purpose, but we do this. And in our modern world, world, I think we're seeing it more and more. Let me just give you a story Uh, to illustrate how easy it is to label somebody. Uh, There's this woman who got on a flight, and she uh, is an international flight, and so she was sitting there, and she still had access to her phone, and so she tweeted something. And what we should know about this tweet was that it was uh, was something, it it could be taken as uh, being hateful to a a certain people group. Um, it, It was incredibly unwise what she wrote, but it wasn't the worst thing at the same time. But she wrote it, turned off her phone, you know, did what she did on the international flight, landed, turned on her phone, 
And as you know, if, you're, if you've ever been in this situation, when you turn on your phone after a flight, you're like, okay, what happened? And what she found was text after text, voicemail after voicemail, questions like, what did you do? Why did you do this? What's going on? What's happening? What she found out was this tweet ended up being seen by people and it was just got momentum and more and more people retweeted it and people began to label her a bigot, racist, this, that, all these things. And it's, again, it is not, it, what she did was wrong. But these people from a million miles away look at this situation and they say, see, you're bad. <laughs> you're evil. And in doing so, they don't care what they do. They don't care if they take her life. And what happened to this woman is she lost everything. She lost her job. She lost her dignity. And I don't know what happened to her since. I, I, I do believe she wrote an article in response a couple of years later trying to get her life together. But this is something we do, particularly in our modern world. Whether it be a celebrity or somebody down the street, we just look at them and we're just like, you're this. And we offend them. We remove their dignity. We don't treat them as humans. And so this is who we are. Everyone in this room, myself included, we have done this. We have offended people. We have labeled people and reduced their, them to something other than human. So we are victims and we are offenders. But the question that this text deals with next is who is God? Who is God in this? Is he present? Is he not? Does he care? Is he indifferent? And I believe if we ask this question, who is God, and we take a snapshot of this story, we will conclude that God is irrelevant and absent. Because we're just looking at a very specific moment in history. And the reason we would conclude this is because the victimized are punished and the guilty go free. Or the innocent are victimized and the guilty go free. And if this is true, that God is indeed absent and irrelevant to our everyday lives as we are victimized and as we offend, this has implication, implications for both the victim and the offender. For the victim, if God is irrelevant and absent, redemption is up to you. And usually that redemption comes by means of achieving some sort of mental and emotional health. And if you can get to that place of health, then maybe you can forgive. But if you can't get to that place of health, you better self-protect in case you get hurt again. And if God is the absent, irrelevant God, this has implications for the offender as well. Redemption is up to you. Forgiveness is up to you. And you, uh, we tend to do this by working off our debt. And if we get to a place where we can do enough good and kind of uh, overturn how we offended somebody, then we can maybe forgive ourselves. We can maybe move on with life. But if we can't do enough good, if we can't make it happen, then we self-medicate the pain and we go and hide. But who is God? Is he really the absent God who's irrelevant? Is that who he is? Well, I think if we don't take a snapshot of Joseph's life here, but we look at the movie of Joseph's life, we come to a very different conclusion. If we look at the movie what we see is God is not the God who is absent and irrelevant, but he is the ever-present God of grace. He's available. He's in and through this story. 
He's present at this moment. He's not some disinterested God living somewhere in the sky, just kind of mingling with human beings from time to time when he feels like it. He's not this weak God who's unable to protect the weak, but he's rather the all-powerful God of grace who makes that grace and mercy available to all. But the question is, is how do you see the grace in this story? How is God present? His name isn't even mentioned. You don't see anything that really happens that suggests that God is present. And maybe this is where you are this morning. You're like, God, I'm told that you are present, but I don't really see you. I don't feel you. Well, it is true. God is present in and through this story. And it's in a little hidden detail in verses 27 through 28. I'm going to read it to you again. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is God's grace. Because through this betrayal, healing, forgiveness, reconciliation would be experienced. You see, if you look at the movie of Joseph's life, if you're not familiar with the story, what happens after this is he goes to Egypt and he's imprisoned for years, years. But eventually, the Pharaoh, the, the person in charge of the land, has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And Joseph having a reputation for interpreting dreams, is called upon. And Joseph tells the Pharaoh what his dream was all about. And Pharaoh's response is, I'm going to put you second in charge. And what Joseph did with that power was he didn't, uh, he didn't use it for himself, but rather he said, what we're going to do for seven years, we're going to store up grain so that in the seven years of famine, we'll have enough for not only ourselves, but the world. And what happens after that? is that Joseph's brothers, the ones who are completely indifferent in this story, who eat after they throw his, their brother into the pit, who say things like, we're not going to lay a hand on him, but nonetheless put him into slavery. These brothers come to Egypt looking for food, and eventually they realize that it is their brother, and reconciliation and forgiveness happen, and all parties are trumped by grace. All parties are seen as our see God as the one who is able to offer these things to his people. And I think this story, this verses 27 and 28, as we look at the grace in this story, and it's hard to see, I think it's very instructive for our own understanding of what God's grace is like and how we are to experience. And I'm going to mention two things. The story provides insight in that God's grace is not always seen or felt. Joseph probably didn't feel that God was present nor full of grace when he sat in the bottom of that pit cut off from relationship. He probably didn't say, oh, everything's going to work out. He probably cried and yelled and wondered if his life was going to end. And the brothers, they probably didn't see or feel that God was present or his grace available for they lied and they went back home and they got away with it for years. For years. And so God's grace is not always seen 
are felt. And this is encouragement for you and for me this morning because if you are in a place where you've just been victimized or you're beginning to deal with that or you've just offended, whether it be a family member or somebody else, and as you come into that experience and you soak in it, it may not feel like God is present or full of grace that is given to you, but it is true. But that's the first insight. The second is that God's grace does not always result in immediate resolution. It took 20 years for healing and forgiveness to take place. 20 years. And the brothers seemed to go on with life and Joseph as well. And that moment where they were forced to deal with their brokenness, their victimization, and their offending is a moment of God's grace where he comes to them in love and says, I want better for you. So here, experience forgiveness. Here, experience my love. And this is true for us this morning, wherever we are at. God is the ever-present God of grace here this morning, present in your brokenness, present in your pain, present in your offending. And the question is, how do we know this is true for sure? Do we have to, like Joseph, wait for our movie to play out and be at the end of it and say, oh, as I look back on my years, God was indeed present. He was really available to me. He really did offer grace. Well, the answer is, Hopefully that will happen in some degree, but today we can know for sure that God offers grace to the world, and we see it in this text, and we see it as we consider who Jesus is and his work. Just as Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver, so was Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. And it was through the betrayal, his betrayal, that grace is present to the world. Because when he was betrayed, he put his life into the hands of Romans and of the Jewish leaders. And he willingly went to the cross knowing that that would achieve forgiveness and grace for the world. And he sat on the cross and he paid the price and he died. But then he resurrected, securing that victory. And not only that, after he resurrected, he he looked at his disciples and he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm leaving now, but I will send my helper, the Holy Spirit. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And what that means is that God will never leave you or forsake you. That is his promise to his people and to the world. And it's secured by his death and secured by his resurrection and seen in his ascension. And today, as we live by faith, we can know that God is the ever-present God of grace. That he is full of grace for people like you and me, for the victim and for the offender. We can believe this. We can trust this. Well, I want to conclude uh, just by simply applying this in two ways. Uh, First, I'm going to speak to those of us who are feeling more like the victim this morning. God is present. He's present for you. His grace is, a, is abundant, and this is true, uh, even, even if you feel like you're in the pit. And I know that in those moments of just feeling like your dignity was removed, uh, where you've been hurt, it's hard to believe that there is life possible. But what I want to encourage you is that today, God is saying through the story, is I am aware, I see, and I'm your friend. Jesus, our brother, is 
aware of our brokenness and he offers the grace and his mercy. And it's simply a battle of believing that and coming again and again and again saying, God, I believe you're present. Give me grace. So it is available to you. And for those of us who feel more like the offender, the same is true that he is present right now. And even though you've thought maybe you've gotten away with something, the invitation is to acknowledge the sin and to come before God and to say, this is truly what I've done. This is truly how I've acted. And I need not hide anymore because his grace is available even now for you and for me. It is true, the God of the Bible is the ever-present God of grace and he gives this to the victims and the offenders. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would encourage us with the story, that we would live in light of it, that we would be encouraged, and that we would know and believe that you are uh, truly a God of grace. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.